Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Lizzie Pickering offers grief guidance and is a speaker, podcaster, author and filmmaker. She offers guidance to private individuals and companies on the effects of grief, whether through bereavement, divorce, diagnosis or workplace change. She has 23 years of experience investigating responses to shock, trauma and grief through her films, podcasts and the years she spent as a carer to her terminally ill eldest child, Harry. Subsequently, through 12 years working at the Children's Hospice where Harry died, she worked closely with the bereavement team on peer-to-peer support and had the privilege of hearing the stories of many bereaved parents and siblings. When Harry died in 2000, she set out on a journey to understand how she could survive her grief and learn to live with it. In her book, Out Now, When Grief Equals Love, she details the lessons she's learned from her own experiences and those of others who share their own thoughts in this moving and powerful book. Lizzie opens her diaries, written in the early years after Harry's death, revealing her observations on the grief of his siblings and family, what helped and what hurt. Revisiting those diaries, she reflects on time passing and what changed for her and her family since. She looks at the myth of closure, survivor's energy and cumulative grief when life and experiences pile up and become too much to bear. In the book, she writes, it took a long time and much investigation into how to survive my own grief, and that is work in progress. But I hope that some of what I've learned so far might resonate. Welcome to the podcast, Lizzie. Thank you so much for for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Jen. Thank you. Um, Thank you for writing your book, When Grief Equals Love. I think it was the title that first drew me to it, but it's such a powerful and moving story. So thank you so much for sharing. Well, I I hope it helps people. I really do. I, I always feel if if it just resonates, if one bit of it resonates for somebody, that's almost enough, isn't it? You know, you don't I didn't ever set out with big or high expectations. Um, But I know that when I wanted to read about grief initially and how to survive it, I looked for writing. I looked for the stories of others in order to help process my own grief. So I just hope I've added into the library of books available. You definitely have. And I think it's also really valuable in that you bring in so many other voices. And what came across for me was how there's no one right way to grieve and that this worked for some people this was something that other people felt and I felt like that was so valuable to have such a mix of different people's voices in there. Yes it's it's funny I, I it took me a long time to to realize that that was what was needed and I should have realized it way back because it's what I was looking for originally um, and I really liked um Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model in some of her books where she had sort of amalgamated stories of her clients to show examples of grief. And I'd found that really comforting. You know, I think these days her, she was the the person who really came up with the idea of the five stages of grief. And now that's slightly disputed, I think quite rightly, that um, we may or may not go through some of those stages, but they're not in any particular order and they're not linear. It's very messy. And so um, 
I, you know, I, I wanted to have the voices of, of many different people who would reflect that um, that notion, I suppose, of the messiness of grief. And so, yes, it, it was such a privilege to carry out those those interviews. It was incredible process mm. to, to go through. And when you were, I mean, Elizabeth's work, well, that was like in the 60s, wasn't it? It came out. And I just wondered when you were looking for those stories or that writing at the time of grief, was there much out there? No, there wasn't. So it was uh, 23 years ago. Actually, it would have been before, it was probably more like 25, 26 years ago, really, because it was the first time I was looking was when my son Harry was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative condition, um, a type of muscular dystrophy. And that was my first point of grief was his diagnosis. So that's when I first started researching. And it was just sort of around the time of the internet. I was just wondering that as you were saying that. I was like, it's so hard to think back, isn't it? We we were so quick to just jump on Google and have resources at our fingertips. And I know when I try and explain to my stepchildren that we had to go to a library and look in an encyclopedia, they look at me as if I'm some dinosaur. So was the internet, but I'm guessing there was nothing like the resources we'd have now on those medical conditions. And and not many books. I mean, the books I turned to were Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I immediately read all her books and um and the, and then C.S. Lewis a grief observed so even I mean what I found interesting and what I think I learned from that was that C.S. Lewis's writing was in that book was about the death of his wife from cancer I was going through anticipatory grief for my son and a change of landscape of what we'd expected I suppose as a family and um, and yet so much of what he wrote about in terms of what grief means, the loss of someone, whether it's a relationship, a death, what a, a big change in your life, um, that those same themes that he wrote about resonated for what I was going through. So I suppose at that point, I realized it doesn't matter if the grief you're going through is an entirely different grief. And after all, everybody's grief is entirely different, even if it's a similar situation, you're still going to grieve differently. So that was my first sort of realisation that actually there was a lot to be learned from anyone who's faced a massive life change, I think. Yeah, Yeah, that's really interesting to talk about it in that way, because I suppose I, I sort of in my head thought, well, I don't have a child, I can't possibly compare the grief of losing a child to me losing a sibling or a parent or something but you're saying that these themes are there whether we're talking about not just the relationship but also the um I guess like with the anticipatory grief we talked about it being just those life changes whether it's a divorce or loss of a job absolutely Jen and and you know with that point in mind that you've made I don't think that grief should be competitive (laughs) You know, when I hear that your father and your brother died, I I felt so, so sad for you, you know, and I I don't think there is a hierarchy to grief. I know some people do, and particularly bereaved parents can think that, but I think it's whatever each individual's worst thing is that they have been through. And I say that really strongly because for some people it could be their grandparent who's died 
and they may be in the workplace and they won't get very much support or sympathy or empathy because it's a grandparent or a cat or a dog. And and the truth is that grandparent, we might not know that that grandparent was their sole caregiver growing up. They were the equivalent of their parent. We may not know that that cat for 20 years has been the main living being in somebody's life that didn't answer back and that in a crisis was always there for them. So, you know, I just don't think we should ever judge other people's grief. I really don't because, because also due to our metabolism, our neurodiversity, our relationships, our friendships, our family situations, there are so many different ways that grief is impacted and how we process it. And And therefore, you know, all those things affect all those different people. So I'm kind of very open minded when it comes to grief, because I just think, you know, we all go through it and it can impact us massively, even though to someone else it might not seem. And and also we can be triggered. You know, I think people can be very shocked. I see grief guidance clients now and one-to-one and so often they've been triggered by something and it might be something really unexpected that's triggered them about past grief that's accumulated so we have to we have to keep our eye on the ball I think where grief is concerned you know yes and I think looking back at some of the things that I've been through I perhaps wouldn't recognize them as grief at the time and it's only later that I've I've seen it like that for example the loss of my health when I was chronically ill and and also the loss of like I'm not able to run and I had so much of my life was around running and the plans and the career choices that I'd made and I think at the time I I wouldn't have labeled that as grief but now now I see it as that kind of loss of of what I expected what I was looking for and and there's a gap there so it's really nice to hear that you have such that a wide range because quite often I get people saying oh it's that they almost apologizing for using the word grief when it's not about a bereavement. Absolutely. You know, and to your point about health, it's a massive one, isn't it? And, you know, I do see clients for grief over over major life changes that aren't to do with death. And really I've developed that work because it was resonating when I was going out in public speaking about grief, people were coming to me afterwards with those sorts of points, you know, and so now I do see people um, who've gone through a major life change due to health um, because it's huge. And I suppose I'd experienced that over, over my son's changing health. You know, when I was told that all my children, male or female, had a one in four chance of having the condition my son had because it was a recessive gene and it was, you know, it was a genetic condition, Um that was that was the rug being pulled massively, you know, and we we had to have my son cam tested, and very luckily he was okay. But then even you know even then I was as as it says in the book, you know, I was suddenly expected to celebrate the the life of one child, which of course was incredible, but Harry was still going to die, and so that was a very mixed thing. And I think the point is that there is no quick fix to any of this. And it's very important that with each of these momentous life changes, and it could be the breakup of a very significant relationship, 
we we have to be allowed to feel the feelings and mourn that period, that person, that relationship, whatever it is. And then when we've really experienced it and felt it, we can only then very slowly, very gradually, incrementally adapt to living in the new situation. And, you know, and I think that's so important to always have in mind. And I'm guessing that mourning period is just, it's going to be so painful, isn't it? And is our tendency to distract ourselves, to shy away, to not go near it? And and is that something that you work with, with people? It is. I would say the majority of the work I do with people is on finding the balance of living with the extreme grief and accepting that we can have joy and sorrow and that over time they maybe are not polar opposites. You know, I think they can go from being sort of north and south, north being joy and south being sorrow in those polar opposites. And hopefully over time, they come to be side by side and they balance each other. And so most of the work I do with people is about how can we find that balance And, you know, that's a multi, multi multi-layered approach, depending on who the person is and their situation and their their wiring, their mental health, all those things, you know. And even this, this week, I've had clients who are in the very deepest throes of very early trauma, um, in this case, over, over sudden deaths. And with them, you know, they're doing a lot of distraction techniques. Um, two or three of those clients in the last 10 days have talked about how hard they're working now they're back at work and how they're actually enjoying throwing themselves into work because it gives their brains and their hearts and their guts a, a rest from thinking about their grief. So it offers a structure to their days they have to work financially but but there are the benefits of work um but then in that case I'm still working with them on where where can they find time to grieve because you can be on the run for years if you're not careful and then you can suddenly be you know be having panic attacks because you've suppressed your grief for so long and then it's going to come up and bite you at some stage for sure, I guarantee. I mean, I'm nodding and like literally I ran away. I was just thinking of those years after my brother and my dad died, which were very close together, just a few months apart. And I went back to work. I mean, there was partly the culture of being a lawyer and that's, you know, I needed the income. And and but but the time when I wasn't working, I was literally running, doing very extreme <laughs> races and distances and things so I'm nodding and obviously with hindsight (laughs) and and Jen that's good though because you know the balancing act is also that we have a survival mechanism uh you know sometimes fueled by adrenaline (laughs) Um, and 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 actually you know as a stress buster obviously I'm preaching to the converted and you know way more about it than I do but you know obviously running walking exercise in my case it's been walking and yoga and meditation whatever it is that suits each person it's important to find that recipe but those stress busters are really good even if they are extreme 
it is just finding that balance of doing a bit of both. And I suppose, you know, I was very lucky in that after Harry died, we had the benefit of the children's hospice, um, which you've read about, I know. Um, you know, and where, when somebody has gone through a bereavement and there's a charity involved, whether it's a cancer charity, you know, there are many, many, obviously many different conditions that have charities attached that may have bereavement support. Obviously, a lot of people die or go through trauma where there isn't a natural partnership or they haven't found that support. Um, and that's a gap that I, I try and help to fill as well as many other grief guidance practitioners do too. You know, it's about finding the recipe. Um, but it is it is that balance. It is always that balance of being aware that we need to grieve as well as having the stress busters. And, you know, so yeah, finding that balance is so important. So I think I, I sometimes feel like with the early grief work, when people are in that deep trauma and they may be on the run, I'm almost sort of throwing a shepherd's crook or a lasso <laughs> to them, you know, bringing them back to make sure that they're grieving at the same time yeah. and letting the feelings out in a safe space. Do you feel like you were able to with the support that you had from the hospice or is this come from, I guess, hindsight of of maybe how you would have done differently? It sounded like the hospice were so supportive to you. They were incredible. And I'd say in answer to your question, a bit of both, actually, there's the benefit <laughs> of hindsight and the support I had. But then it's going to be messy and it's there's no perfect way yeah. to grieve, is there? So maybe we need to be a bit more compassionate and we did what we did to survive. Yeah. You, you, we have this survival instinct, don't mm. we? And we want to live, hopefully. And it's about finding that path forward. But yes, the, with the hospice, with Helen Douglas House in, in Oxford, which was the first children's hospice in the world, and it's a wonderful blueprint for all the other children's hospices in the UK and globally, actually. And they, they had, uh, I mean, amazing provision. First of all, the little room where my, we, it's like the Irish wake. So my son was actually laid out in the little room and which is a chilled bedroom. And you choose how you see the child there, you know, whether in, Harry was just in a normal bed. We were able to take things in for him. My children made pictures and took them in for him and, you know, almost sort of gave him gifts, like a sort of ritual of adaptation in that first few days. We also then had, and we were able to stay at the hospice for that whole week. And then um, I did a whole year's course where we met, I met with other people every two months on a Sunday and that was a series of actual sort of workshops where we worked through some exercises in grief. And that was really, really important work over a year. It was tough. I think when you really rip the plaster off grief, it is hard work and it's really tough. You know, I remember on the first, after the first day, it took me two or three days to recover from that day because I'd gone back to square one again, but I needed to. And I, it was ripping the plaster off. It was very traumatic. But over that year of meeting every two months, we worked forward. We we moved forward as a group. So that mix of sharing the grief with others in a safe space with with professionals and the, and it was very creative the way we worked through it. Um, and it had a sort of 
end to the work. And it wasn't that any of us were better, but I think it had moved us on in our gradual adaptation around our grief. It had had moved us forward in some way. And, you know, the things I learned there, I've taken with me, you know, into my life now, and I pass them on to other people. And you just use the words like gradual adaptation. And I think in the book, there was use the words like relationship with grief and I just wondered how important that language is and whether we really get it right and there seems to be this do some people want to work towards this closure this well and then I'm better that I'm moving on or is that just not possible I mean I, I can only personally speak from my own experience of 23 years of living with grief but I have also as you said at the beginning you know listened to the voices of hundreds of other people mm. now who who um are living with grief and so f- what I've learned from listening to others is that I think more more the normal way at the real way and it was a bit of a paradox to me at the beginning it was a shock that after the first year I didn't feel you know significantly better <laughs> and I had people coming to me after weeks and quizzing me about why they don't feel any better you know and even months year and sometimes years and and the truth is you know we all, we're all going to process it differently but I found it much harder to say I have not seen my son Harry for six days then six weeks then six months then six years and now it's 23 years and I wouldn't say it's easier to say those words but what I do have now is some acceptance of what has happened and how I can live with it and that to me is an organic process there is no quick fix I don't think and if anyone has discovered it please get in touch um I think if it was out there you'd have found it (laughs) I hope so I've investigated for a long time I've been looking under a lot of rocks I mean I can come back and tell you you know in 50 years if I what I feel yeah at the moment yes Um, so so you know to me it seemed to make more sense that we sort of that that we we move forward in an organic way step by step and and it is messy in between. You know, I remember at the beginning, I could feel okay for maybe half an hour or five minutes. I don't know. It felt like a very short time. And then the waves of grief would hit me again. But over time, what happened was that those waves of grief became further apart. And the sort of calm waters in between were more and and you know and again this balancing act things began to even out as i found my way forward there is the most incredible book that i read last year called um the grieving brain by mary frances o'connor and sadly i hadn't read it when i wrote my but well she hadn't published it she's she's a neuroscientist working in america and i was very lucky to meet her this summer we spent an evening together when she was over from the states And her book gave me so many light bulb moments because she describes how she's spent decades studying the human brain in grief and and with with some animals as well, studying their behavior with grief. And she says that what happens is when someone dies, really our relationship with them doesn't change, does it? That's the confusion for our brains because 
because somebody has died. They are not physically here anymore, but in our lives as a presence. But everything else about the relationship with them is the same. In our hearts, our guts, our lungs, at a cellular level, in our brains, we can't understand that they've gone because our relationship with them is the same. So it's a very alien concept when we talk about closure, I think, because why would I want to have closure on, it sounds like putting a lid on my son, who is still my son and who I love very much and who my brain and heart and gut still know is that he is still that person to me. It's just he's not physically here. So that's a big confusion. And what she says is that it takes a lifetime for our brains to map everybody in our world, in our circle, in our wider circles. Everybody is mapped by our brains according to who they are and what they mean to us. And so actually when someone dies, our brains take a lifetime to remap who is now in our circle and how that death or that partnership changing. And it's the same for a relationship breakup, because when you take a person out of a relationship, it affects whole families, whole groups of people, whole communities when that relationship changes. The whole friendship group will change around it. And so this is a gradual incremental process for our brains to adapt. And she's proved it. You know, she she's She's got the science behind it. And I'm so grateful to her because I just it made sense of everything I discovered from my for myself and from listening to others. And suddenly there's this book in the world that proves it. Oh, thank you for sharing. I'm definitely going to go and look up that book now. Who did you say that the um, author was? She's called Mary Frances O'Connor and she's American and it's called The Grieving Brain. And so- and when you were afterwards yeah when you were talking about that what I found it was almost quite freeing and that we don't need to rush we if it's going to take a whole lifetime that's fine and so we don't need to be rushing through these stages or phases or trying to get to this happy peaceful land that we think is going to be on the other side even though we know now that it's not um so yeah that feels like just really really freeing to hear that Yes, actually, actually, one of the people I interviewed in the book, um, Luke Ashworth, whose son Harvey died very suddenly and unexpectedly when he was young. Um, I saw him recently. He's a dear friend. And he said to me that one of the things that has freed him up the most recently is his realization that he's not going to get there Mm. because he said he's been working for he's been working very, very hard for the last decade to get somewhere in terms of his grief. And I thought that was the most brilliant way of describing it because it's a lifetime's process and we get better at living with it. And we can, you know, I lead a really happy life now. I really, really do. And, but it's not that the grief's gone away. I've just adapted around it. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. And I don't want it to go away because that's the book title. It represents my love for my son. And actually, you know, I think what can happen over the years is that we can have a shift in our grief and a shift and a change in our perspective as time goes on. And that's very different from being better or, you know, having healed or all these notions of getting rid of it. 
I think for most people, the most frightening thing, so all my clients say week after week after week, is is the notion of the grief going in a way because it's a bond with the person. It's the continuing bond with them. So sometimes when, you know, in years to come, there's a sort of jolt of pain or a niggle because you've looked at a photo for too long, you've connected to them. So if we can change our perspective and that that pain represents love for the person, it's connecting us to them and it's less of a negative. But it's hard to understand that in the early throes of grief, I think. I wouldn't have believed that if someone had said it to me. Yes, yes. And I think sometimes when I've had that seemingly out of nowhere, that sudden bursting into tears thinking about grief, I've often thought that that might be a failure, that I'm back at the start and that I haven't got through this enough and things but because it can be quite bewildering suddenly you know 10 years after somebody's died I know that we'll talk about how the time isn't really an issue but it's just that I I guess that comes from that feeling that I should be getting somewhere and I should be getting over this and I shouldn't be bursting into tears at nothing 10 years later. Uh, Absolutely so two things on that point one is I celebrate tears. I think tears are the most wonderful, wonderful thing. They they let stress out of your body. So I absolutely celebrate tears. And I think, you know, there's this notion that people are fearful that by bringing up the name of somebody or bringing up the subject of somebody who's died, that they're going to make someone cry. And I never see it like that. I think I would reframe that as being, um, you've given a, sp- a safe space to somebody and enabled them to cry. What a gift that is. <laughs> so, you know, I think when we cry on our own in the way you've described or something's triggered us, we just should actually just let it out and not feel bad that we haven't, you know, we haven't got to this. Um, got it all together. <laughs> fantasy place that we're going <laughs> to get to. Um, and, and, Yes. And and the, and the other thing is, you know, I, I it does take a long, long time, doesn't it? it? It takes many years. There's a wonderful author, Dr. Edith Egger, who is at 95, a social media influencer. She has a really cool Instagram account. <laughs> She's a Holocaust survivor. And there are a lot of podcasts with interviews with her. And, you know, she's got a real presence. But um, she, in her, her, she's written two books. The choice is the first one, and the gift. And in them, she says that in order to save her marriage, she went through marriage difficulties. I mean, she'd, she survived Auschwitz just about. She and her sister were take, you know, they'd collapsed. They were almost on death's door, and and they were carried out on the day Auschwitz was discovered and they were literally carried out physically from Auschwitz but she ended up in America um she you know by then was speaking a new language she trained as a psychologist she's a trauma expert but when she's speaking personally she had to in order to save her marriage she had to go back and revisit Auschwitz and that was her ripping the plaster off for herself and she says that she's still at the age of 95 all these years on is is dealing with her own grief in different ways every day and making sure that she's in a good place with it. 
So even as a as a global trauma expert, you know, she sometimes can take her eye off the ball with it and have to readdress it herself. So, you know, I found that comforting to know, because I think if we, to your point about, you know, what happened to you and the crying and shocking yourself a bit with, with it, if we know that that's okay, and we know that this is part of the grief process that we live with, it takes the fear and guilt out of it or the sort of stigma that we should be better now. Mm. Um, you know, I've I've got a client who I worked with a couple of years ago. We did a lot of amazing sessions together and, and she was mourning the death of her 100-year-old mother and the client was 60. But her mother carried a lot of trauma from the Second World War that had been carried down through the family. And it had meant that there'd been a stigma around grief and it was very difficult for this client to mourn a baby who died because she almost wasn't allowed to because it was nothing compared to the mother's grief over the Second World War. You know, this generational trauma that we can carry down with us and this notion that we shouldn't speak about it, we have to blow that out of the water, I think, and we have to be allowed to speak mm. to help get it out into the world yeah you 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 really it was really thought-provoking when you raised about well ancestral trauma but also the generational trauma as well in your book and you also talked about your parents what they'd been through trying to have a baby with the babies that they'd lost and miscarriages and I just when did you start labeling that as generational trauma and exploring that and having that vocabulary was that something while you were going through your grief after Harriet died, or was that something earlier that you'd been looking at? It, I'd always been aware of it, but I think a real change in my acceptance of generational trauma being such a strong thing in grief um, was when I made a film. So I have a, a sort of separate life in, in films and I worked with the director, Polly Steele, and we made a film together, an independent film called Let Me Go, starring Juliet Stevenson. And it's set in the year 2000. And it's based on the true story of Helga Schneider, who, um, who was a child in the Second World War and uncovered in the year 2000, she uncovered a secret about her mother. It's available on Amazon. So I'm not going to say too much about it. But it's the film takes place in 2000. And it's how that family secret from the Second World War had influenced the relationships of the four women in the story, four generations of women in one family, and, and how this story unfolds. And we, Polly and I went out to um, Bologna and stayed with Helga Schneider and spent a week with her talking with her before we made the film. And I learned so much then about generational trauma and it's it's made me hold it in mind when I'm working with my clients. Um, I mean, now with the study of epigenetics, scientists are beginning to prove that trauma is it impacts our DNA. They did a lot of studies with um, pregnant women who were affected by 9-11. And, you know, I think that study will increase in the years to come. And, you know, so it's not just behavioral trauma that's generational, but it can impact our DNA as well. 
So, you know, that's really interesting. That's something I don't know enough about, but I've read various articles and it's a really interesting thing to look into. And I'm guessing it sounds like you're passionate about us then having a better approach or just being able to talk about grief and trauma. And I guess, is that the way that we can stop this generational trauma in our own families? Yes, I, I I think so. I think the more we share our experiences in the safest place possible, the better, because we're constantly processing it and letting it out and airing it out of our bodies. Because, you know, I think we all know now how much um, grief and stress can impact the physical body. And we need to work physically and mentally to process grief of any sort. And um, it, it's just an ongoing process. It's, it's, it's so important. And everybody needs to find their own recipe and their own menu for how to do that. You know, whether it's therapy i mean i mean personally i've tried so many things or not tried them um you know given given them a good go and benefited from them benefited from so many things i think i would say actually um cuz tried sort of smacks of maybe not having <laughs> achieved anything with them and i'd say all of the things i've tried have so far um increased my acceptance of living with my grief and they include and they've come to me over the years, you know, um, initially having the support from the children's hospice, um, one-to-one grief support and the group. Um, I then connected very deeply with my son by working at the children's hospice for 12 years. So in a way, that was another thing that I wasn't really aware of, but it was a continuing bond with him through that work. Um, I do yoga now. Um, every morning, which really helps. I see that as medicine, and I know I'm talking to a yoga teacher. <laughs> <laughs> what What uh, is it specifically about yoga that you think is so beneficial to you? Um, for me personally, it feels like I reset my mind and body every morning, ready for each different day and whatever that might bring. So I think with grief, there's a, you know, we know that it can affect the lungs very badly. And I had pneumonia every year for four years after my son died. And since I've done more yoga and exercise and really been aware of that effect on my lungs, touch wood, I, my lungs have been healthy since. Um, I, so breathing is very, very important. I do a lot of breath work with my clients. Um, and I say to them, even when they're out and about in their normal day, maybe whenever they can feel themselves holding their breath, which is what we do in stress and grief, we just hold our breath. I think there's such an irony there that somebody dies and we, the living, hold our breath. <laughs> if someone stops breathing and we 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 do too. And so we need to work quite hard on remembering to breathe. And yoga obviously is so good for that, isn't it? And meditation for the same reason. If I can feel stress building during the day, I, I use a lot of apps. You know, I might go on a, an app like Buddhify or Headspace or any of those and just do a five minute meditation. And that alone can just reset me and bring 
any stress down, get me breathing properly again. Um, music festivals have been amazing, you know, being with friends, crying my eyes out to significant music that triggers me and then laughing and being with friends in the same space. I love music festivals. Um, and, and when I have clients who maybe don't, I've been very lucky to have a wonderful community of friends around me um, it, where people are maybe introvert and don't have this, uh, you know, a support group. And I think in grief, we can often discover that some of our friends walk away because they can't cope. It can be very isolating. I always say to people, if you can find even one person I remember, you know, I do a lot of work with quite big companies and and they send grief clients to me. And one girl I was working with, she was very lonely in her work because she felt very isolated through her grief. And I said to her, is it possible to find even one person in your company who has been through grief, not even similar grief, but who might understand who's a similar age to you? And she did actually research and find somebody and then was courageous enough to reach out to her. And they became really good friends through their grief. They didn't really know each other before. And so it was just important for her to find that one person at work that she could share things with occasionally. And, and that, you know, that was another little little part of her grief toolkit that she mm. was putting together. And, and I think, you know, I'm a great advocate for finding some of the charities involved with grief actually yesterday i i'm i'm working with somebody who has young children and whose partner has just died and i spent yesterday afternoon getting in touch with charities like winston's wish and i went down a, a long rabbit hole of hospices local to her and um discovered a wonderful organization called yo-yo that were that are providing in-person care because sometimes it's quite hard to find in-person groups and for young children it's quite important um and they were funded by children in need and they're offering in-person help for for these young children that need some support so it's out there but sometimes in deep grief people don't feel like doing that research for themselves so then in that case either i will do it if they're my client or i'll suggest you know a lot of friends might ask what they can do to help get them to do some research for you into these things i mean our dear friends ben and polly when our son was diagnosed they did a lot of research for us into his condition that we couldn't cope with seeing but they very generously offered to do it for us and then give us the sort of edited version that we could cope with and then we could ask them for more. But, you know, that's the sort of help that can be really good practical help when people need support. Yes, you do give some really good advice at the end of the book of practical things. And I think that was one of them, the signposting, whereas I think I'd be more reticent about doing that, that I didn't want to be treading on their toes or kind of getting too involved but it seemed like that was something that was really beneficial not just for you but a lot of the people that had used charities and used services in their own story I was just thinking then when because one thing that surprised me when you were talking about how you'd gone through phases and I don't think you meant kind of just systematically like but but you had phases of grief and you said about the early phase and I was thinking this would be like the six weeks but with the funeral but you were like that was two to three years <laughs> and then what struck me was like we were just talking about 
people at work and it's like well I guess if you're lucky you might get a week of unpaid leave of, of paid leave or something like that like you're really having to or some people are having to go back into work while they're still at the very start of those early phases aren't they and I just wondered how how difficult that can be for people and what sort of support you can advise the companies and the structures to offer them absolutely it's such it's such an important thing because after all we spend a lot of us spend the majority of our lives with our work colleagues and at work in times in terms of time it can be a huge amount of of our lives and it's so important that that colleagues are educated the hr teams are educated and they know how to support somebody through their grief for many years for you know over time and that they're educated to understand that it's not just the first year but also that that's not a can of worms and it's not a, a big mountain to climb and it's not a huge amount of work it's mainly about just checking in with people and seeing what they need um to your point about the time off, I, I just spoke to a vet recently who'd had a horrendous and very, very catastrophic, significant bereavement. And she was given three days of work and <sighs> compassionate leave. And I mean, that's nothing, is it? Exactly. And she's off. And, and in a way, I know we could say, well, no amount of time is going to no. be enough. But actually, I don't think it's true because I think we naturally do get to a point. I mean, most of us have to go back to work for financial reasons, uh, the majority of people. But I think there does come a time sometime after the funeral or in the weeks after that, that you get to a point where you need some structure in your life and you almost crave that. And work always feels like it's going to be familiar a bit of the old normal when everything else seems different and and the structure to your day. But the trouble is, the truth is, and I hear it over and over again in the companies I work with, you know, people go back to work and they're met with this silence because their colleagues don't know what to say. And that's the work I'm doing is to try and dispel this so that people feel more able to have these open conversations. We look at the language around grief and what, you know, the, the, the good things to say, the good things to offer, maybe having a grief ally who, who is just somebody who doesn't need training. It's simply a friend who can check in on you and with your permission, translate how you are to the rest of the team on any given day. Um, and and to be able to say if you're having an off day that that it's you know it might be around an anniversary or a birthday and that that should be okay to be able to talk about that and have people understanding and people not saying oh but it was a year and a half ago you should be okay now mm. you know it doesn't work like that but it's also not rocket science <laughs> so a lot of the work i do with companies is looking at their grief guidelines I really love it when companies, and I advise them to do this, they have their mental health section on their internet for staff, but they separately have a grief section. And that might have some signposting, some guidelines, the basis of what their grief provision is. And it encourages staff to speak to the HR team if they if they need some grief support. And, and that way, you know, it's very open 
Um, we might record a podcast where you're hearing the voices of staff um, sharing their grief stories, because I do find in companies, if people can hear the voices of their peers and their colleagues, especially some senior people talking about their own mental health or grief stories, it, it acts as a bridge for them to take the stigma out of it and to know that it's fine to go and have some support. Um, you know, and I often find in two to three sessions over some months that, um, you know, it can make a big difference on shifting people's perspectives. It's it's not a difficult thing for companies to do, but it's a really important thing. Mm. You know, one thing that came up in your book and from my own experience as well is this, a lot of dealing with grief is protecting other people and and not wanting to, and then you're in that position of not wanting to upset other people. Like, for example, if I get asked, do I have any brothers or sisters? And it's a really complex question. And I'm kind of assessing, well, do I tell them, well, I used to have this brother that died, or it feels wrong to say I've only got one brother. So you're constantly making that judgment, or I feel like I am, of does this person need to know about this big bit of grief in my life? And and I felt like you were experiencing that too, of who you spoke to and I think there was a time where you worried that you'd kind of instead of saying I'm fine you actually went into how your that your son was fine um, after Harry's death and yes I just wondered is this something that we're all just having to navigate and there's no answer or would this be something that would be lessened if we could talk about death and grief in a much more open way Oh, it's such a good point, Jen. And my children would totally be aligned with you on on that question of do you have siblings and whether you say, you know, yes, but sadly one of them died or whether you say a different answer. And yes, I do the same with my my son when people say, do you have children? I I judge, usually I judge whether I like the person, whether I think it'll land okay am I going to see them again? Mm. Um, you know, there are lots of factors. Um, or do they need protecting? Do I need to protect myself? All those things. So I've got better at it. But I work with, with my clients, this comes up a lot. And we very often find lines, we work on them together, we work on sentences that they feel comfortable with. And then we work on different scenarios that they can wheel those sentences out. And 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 actually, it really helps. You know, they literally can. I mean, I've had doctors asking me the same question. I was working with some doctors on the east coast of America, and one of them was saying, you know, what can I say to a parent whose child has just died in my care 30 seconds after they've died? What do I do and what do I say? And, you know, in that instance, I said, you give them some choice back. And and let's work together to find out the thing you feel comfortable in saying and then think of the different scenarios in which you could use that sentence. Because then I think it takes some of that fear of getting it wrong out and is going to be less awkward. And, you know, in, in that instance, it was definitely about I learned at Helen House that, you know, the fact we were given choice in the hours after Harry died over some very little decisions connected to him and his body, it really 
made a huge difference to us feeling like we had some tiny control over something when you feel that all of that's gone. And I think that's what we build on, isn't it? Over the time afterwards, we build on having some choice and control back in our lives. And yes, I I think it can really help anyone to have some answers up their sleeve that they've almost practiced and rehearsed or written down. I mean, I think we can all suffer from awful brain fog after a major bereavement. And therefore, actually, sometimes I always say to people, write down a list of all the people that have offered help to you. And And then look at the, you know, prioritize that list in order of the people you really want to have support from, who you feel are the right people. And then when things happen that you do need help on, you can just look at that list. And it's almost the same with those sentences, you know, that that for different situations. Because the point is those, it's about self-protection as well. And those Mm. situations can trigger you massively at the beginning because they take you by surprise, but you you also know that they're going to happen again. And so having having these responses is really useful. It's something practical you can do. Mm. And just from the, you mentioned the word triggers. And I suppose when you, you described earlier how you worked at the hospice for 12 years after Harry had died there and you your career now is just talking about grief so much and for me I think I'd find that quite difficult or obviously I've never tried it but I think that it would be harder to to work in grief to work with bereaved parents to see people going through that very raw time that you had to go through and I just wondered what yeah it feels like you've seen it as a positive that you were able to do this work but at times it must be so difficult and I wondered if it would just be easier if you were in a completely different career oh it's it's such a good point to bring up Jen and I think you know we are all different um I suppose because over those years before Harry died, we'd spent a lot of time being connected to the children's hospice, receiving their support for respite care. We stayed there as a family with Harry for our summer holidays, for long weekends. We were very connected to them. And so I sort of found, and it, in a way it was my normal, my normal for those years of looking after Harry we were full of um, hospital appointments, doctor's appointments, healthcare professionals, and meeting people who were also, you know, who also had very sick children. And I think one of the things that can happen when somebody dies in that situation is, is that you're taken away from that community. And I, I missed them. It feels like you've crossed a line to the other side and left them all behind. And they're going to follow you one day, but you hope that day isn't too soon Mm. for their sakes. But actually by working with them, I felt so connected and I felt it was very positive, almost being in service and sort of being able to offer something back. And I was very acutely aware that actually by just even existing and breathing and being able to smile, they could see that I was surviving and that that was a positive. So I suppose it incrementally grew from that early work. And my biggest learning now really in doing this work is that I can't make anybody better. And so 
I think the reason I can do the one-to-one sessions is that I go into them from a very from a flat line almost where I zero my ego and my energy and everything else and I just sit with them and I'm led by what they want to talk about and I'm acutely aware that I cannot make them better and I think if I was trying to come up with a solution and make them better I would be carrying all their grief with me but I'm never doing that I'm simply listening to them talk because it's not about my story you know the book is a separate thing but when I'm doing grief guidance it's nothing to do with me all I can draw on is my experience and the experiences of all those people I've talked to so I can share the insights from many many different people not just me and that way I'm not carrying their grief I'm 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 beside them with it, but I'm very careful not to take it on. And therefore, you know, seeing sitting in a one hour session with somebody, which is mainly online, because that way I see my clients are all over the UK. Um, I was working with a client in New Delhi last week and I have another one in France, you know, so it opens it up to be for anyone. I see them shift sometimes towards the end of the session, sometimes halfway through, there's no telling. But at some time during the session, something they've been talking about will shift perspective or shift the energy because we've been able to draw it out, discuss it, analyze it, look at it, think of think of ways forward. And, and so then that adds into their grief toolkit and it's a shift and that to me is the greatest joy is to see somebody find this new perspective through conversation and that's all it is but I think that means I'm not taking it on board myself. Mm. Yes I was thinking as you were describing your work about how you must be quite conscious of not taking it all on or else you'd probably be burnt out and I wonder if some people in that work could be. And I think I think in a strange way, I find it it is it's really hard. And I do sometimes get nervous before somebody who's particularly traumatized is coming coming online. But I I just have to keep holding on to the fact I cannot make them better. Nobody can make anyone else better in grief. And you know, with that perspective and that as the starting point, it's okay. And actually, mostly I find that what I'm witnessing every day of my life is the greatest courage in people, which is incredible. You know, so when you're with somebody at such a low point, but they've got the courage to even come and talk to you. To me, that's a really amazing thing. So mostly every day, I actually find joy and amazement in doing this work because you're seeing people with so much courage and it makes me believe in the strength of human nature so I don't find it depressing because it's about it is about finding these small ways forward and if I can help somebody just find one tiny incremental shift in a session that's enough Mm. that's all we're looking for Oh, and when you talked about courage there, I immediately went to resilience as well, because that's, we haven't mentioned it yet, but that is what the podcast is about. But I was very conscious at the, 
as I was going through the episodes on talking about resilience and I wanted to just be curious, I spoke to therapists, coaches, people that have been through tough times. I was often told that it was about bouncing back and <laughs> I don't think it is to do with grief and I'm pretty sure that you don't either. And I just wondered, but then I suppose what I look at is so much change. I'm thinking of your career, but also I can quote it for myself as well. Like there's people that I've met that I wouldn't have met if I hadn't gone through what I was doing. It sounds like you've had so much satisfaction from your work and there's a lot to be grateful for in those connections. But what I find hard is that that you've had to go through such a difficult thing or I've had to go through, through such a difficult thing to to have that. And I suppose it's going back to those messy holding the joy and the pain at the same time um, for me. And yes, I just wondered where the resilience, what works for you in terms of looking at resilience in grief and and also, I guess, that growth that you've had or those changes that it brought about. I think that the moment you said bouncing back then, it the word that came to my mind instantly out of nowhere was strong foundations. And I, I think... Certainly for me, and I think from the people I talk to, it's about laying foundations. It's it's almost about, it's sort of, it's not exactly starting again, but you are in a new world with grief. You're in a new world that doesn't include whoever or whatever you've lost. And so you're putting down strong flooring and foundations from which to be in the world without that person. So I think it's it is the opposite of bouncing back. It's it's laying the foundations and those foundations for me were seeking help, grief guidance, looking at what was available, investigating at every turn, reading, educating myself about grief from the stories of others. Um sharing with friends where possible, but I too found it isolating because there were very, very few friends, maybe not any that you could tell the entire truth to, but I could tell it more to the people who'd been through something similar. But even then you still protect each other. Mm. It's only, I think, in grief guidance or therapy or somewhere that you are actually in a space for an hour or whatever it is, where you are only there to talk about the issues that come up, that then you're not protecting anyone. I think maybe with friends, you can tell one friend something and one another, but you couldn't you couldn't put the whole thing on them. And we have to deal with it ourselves. We are the only people that can find the way forward. And so having this sort of menu or recipe for how to piece ourselves back together with the strong foundations doesn't smack of bouncing back I think does it it's it is that's the resilience is finding the strength to investigate and to find these new pieces and and looking back to see what you want to bring forward with you into this new landscape the strong friendships the people that are there for you and maybe editing and curating your life as it was 
bringing forward what you've learned and what you want to have with you going forward or who you want to have. And then, and that might include work as well and work changes as a result of, of um, trauma um, or, or just, you know, this new situation. And then moving forward slowly with these strong foundations that you're laying down in order to face this new life and new landscape in a different situation. And and is it always going to be new? Is there a tendency that we want to get back to how things were before and that's just not possible? I I think there is, yes, definitely. All we want is to turn the clock back. Mm. But it's but actually, it's not always a negative. I think, you know, this idea of curating our lives in a new way is also quite exciting because it is a time to edit our lives because every time someone dies or we go through a major life change with a relationship, it is a time to reset. It's a time to look at what we really want out of life do we really love the work we're doing? What we There are things we can't change. We can't change that somebody's died. Mm. That's where I don't have a magic wand. But what we can do is look at our lives and think, this is what I have left. How do I want to live it? And some of those things we can't control because, you know, you might be in poverty, you might be in difficult relationship situations anyway, there may be other things we can't control, but we can still always look at the bits we can control and always edit and curate those bits to make our lives the best they can be in our situation. Mm. And I do feel that I have a deeper connection, particularly with people that have been through similar and that there's ways in which my life is richer or maybe I notice the ways more. And I just wondered if that was something that you'd felt too. Definitely, absolutely, definitely. I wish that my son Harry hadn't died. I wish he hadn't had that condition, but those are the bits I can't change. Mm. But I, I love my life as it is now. There are a lot of ripple effects of his death and grief and change that have impacted my life since he died. And those ripple effects have gone on. But, and I'd include divorce in that, Mm. but I love my life as it is now. And I've worked really, really hard to survive my grief and live well with it. And I celebrate you know, that work and the work to be done with others, because I think we can find a way forward. And I have joy in my life. I have wonderful friends. I have incredible family. I'm very lucky. And I just celebrate that, you know, for me, actually, when we go, if we go back to yoga and what it does, you know, in that reset every day and breathing properly and being in the moment, Every day that yoga sort of tells me to look at the day and live it well. And um, that's what I try and do. Don't always get it right, but (laughs) we can all try to do that. But we need those foundations and the strength that builds gradually out of the initial trauma to be able to do that. It's a slow process. (laughs) And and now we know a life process, probably, (laughs) or certainly. 
<laughs> yeah, and I don't think that's a negative. You know, mm. I I think a lot of good things evolve slowly, don't they? Mm. Yes, like an unpeeling and unlayering. Really, that's how it feels feels to me. I just wanted to sorry one quick question was that you had a church funeral for your for Harry, and I just wondered whether religion was something that was strong in your life and and how that had impacted your grief and whether that is something that we can add to the toolbox that you talk about for others. I think it's definitely something to add to the toolbox. Um, I grew up going to church. My mum had a very deep faith, which she didn't ever sort of put on, expect other people to have, but she had it. And um we went to church when I was a child, but I've never, sadly, I've never shared that deep faith. But I see with many of my clients and friends that a deep faith of any sort in different cultures, different forms of faith, all faiths, many faiths or no faith, you know, but there are so many different forms. I never just think of one. Um, they can be immensely helpful. And I think so too can be, although I, I am a spiritual person, but I don't have one faith, but there are many rituals in faith that are very useful in grief. And so, you know, I do factor in some of those in my life. Um, and, you know, I wish we had a Mexican day of the dead in this country because what a wonderful thing to have a date each year that that celebrates the people we love to have died where you could actually you know party and make their food and make their special food and play the music they loved or that resonates for you all those things to celebrate them and we don't have anything like that there there is a mo a, a move at the moment to have a celebration day in may each year in the uk oh really um, and I was involved in that this year. We d- we did a panel at Hay Festival about it. But, you know, we don't still have something. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think anything that is, we have National Grief Awareness Week in December, which is a great hook for particularly for companies to sort of do some work around grief. So already working on, on those sessions for companies in December I think, you know, and and faith can factor into that, I think, where you've got community. A lot of faith is about wonderful community Mm. and support and rituals, and that can only be beneficial in Mm. grief. Yeah, I think one thing that I found quite, I guess, going back to those protecting people is when people have said to me that my dad or my brother is is in heaven watching me and to me I don't have that belief and again it comes back to well I'm just not going to challenge them on that. if that gives them comfort then I'm happy to to go along with that but I guess it comes back to to what works for us and there's no one way is there to to get through grief and and live with it there, there isn't and you're <laughs> right I mean it can be challenging when I used to find it quite challenging when people said that mm. uh, because I felt you know, the only place I wanted Harry was in the heart of our family, physically there. And the notion of him being anywhere else I found really painful. Mm. But that was, as you say, that was my personal view. So again, going back to language, you know, I think it's it's a kind of better if people don't put their own personal views on, on it. 
um, because it's placating someone and it's it's wanting to placate them and make something better, isn't it? That notion of trying to come up with a sentence of, you know, maybe he's happy in heaven or, yeah. all, you know, it's, it's, it's our own discomfort about death. And actually what would be better to say is, you know, um, I'm so sorry about what's happened to you. I'm here. And if there's anything practical I can ever do to help you, I'm here. Or, you know, that sort of thing where you're not actually putting a viewpoint on somebody you're just offering mm. support yeah it definitely came up through the book you can't f- there's nothing you can do to fix this <laughs> you're not going to make it better with a sentence to somebody who's just had such that traumatic experience or bereavement absolutely and and someone who is brave enough to just be beside you and laugh and cry with you and make the space safe enough that if you laugh, you don't feel guilty. And if you cry, you don't feel guilty or that, you know, they're not going to think they made you cry. Yeah, They are an absolute gift, those people. Oh. And they're rare, actually, I think. You know, I think in every friendship group, there might be one or two that really stay the distance and sit with you in your grief. Mm. And I've often found that they are people that have had similar experiences for me. Yes. Jen, Jen, can I ask you a question? A lot of your your life obviously is about about walking and trekking and being with people walking forward. Do you find people speak more easily when they're walking with Mm, you? Absolutely. Yes, I do. And I've just come back from a yoga retreat that I was doing the walking on and the depth of the conversation that I had with these people that had, um, I'd I'd never met before really struck me. Um, I think it's just such a, a beautiful place to be in with, it's, it's, it's not a we're not face to face you know we're walking side by side and I think that really helps people feel a little bit more relaxed and just being out in nature and all the time nobody feels rushed so yes I do find that a lot absolutely and I you know I think when people are offering to support someone in grief it's a really good idea to just suggest going out for a Mm. walk and I think it's just there's no you know if we're sat in a room or having coffee I think sometimes the silences can feel quite intense um but but I don't get that outdoors often go to people with people and maybe we don't speak for a long period of time but it doesn't feel awkward in any way because you're moving forward and Mm. walking you've got a purpose a shared purpose haven't you yeah so even though that's not the intention of why I'm taking people out but I often find that we have some Yes, some very um, deep conversations that I don't think I'd have otherwise. No, it's good. Mm, Bet you wish you could take your clients out rather than having to see them on the... I mean, I can. Okay. Yeah, you know, I think anything goes. And actually with Helen House, when my bereavement support visitor used to come because they weren't counsellors or therapists, They they were very, you know, knowledgeable on grief. They... We could do anything like that. Mm. You know, we might dig the garden or walk, walk because I had a baby at the time. We could go out for a walk with the baby, you know, while Harry and Cam were at school. And that would be my grief guidance because we'd walk and talk. So I think, yes, I'm always up for anything, really. Mm. I think just personally as well, when I started running after my dad and my brother died, I think 
at home I was in a relationship where I didn't feel very comfortable crying because they had no idea what to do and I was working and and being outside for me was just a place I could let down the masks because I wasn't seeing anybody and quite often on those runs I would just sit on a log and cry and uh, looking back I thought at the time I wasn't resilient because I was letting it get to me and I was should be stronger and had very um sort of rigid ideas of what sto- this sort of stoicism and this kind of resilience and and at the, now when I look back they were the moments when I was feeling the pain and the processing what was happening yeah so actually they were really you know you were doing yourself such a favor with all of that mm. let, letting it out the stress busting of running the crying but I think if you do I think crying is really hard in front of people they and and I've probably done it myself if I've been with people that are crying you really just want to do and say anything to make them stop yeah you, yes exactly and actually it's you know it's such a good thing such mm. a positive thing to cry um but yeah and people apologize the whole time <laughs> for crying yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and how's it been since the book came out? Again, it's so personal, those diaries that you and and talking about your relationships. And I just wondered whether that was something that you had made public before, whether it's something that's been quite difficult for you. It it was quite daunting. Um, I think I felt more brave because I'd got the 23 interviews there in the book. And so it wasn't just about me. Um, and, but, but I mean, I'd done some public speaking when I worked for the children's hospice about my own experience, but then in the sort of grief education that I was doing for companies, it wasn't my story, you know? So yes, it was a much more personal element that I was putting out there. And I asked Hugo, my ex-husband who I'm close to and Cam and Emily, my children, before I even went to a publisher, I asked them to read it and to to see what they felt about it. So I had their blessing. Um, and with the interviews, they'd obviously all signed off there. They were audio recorded interviews that I then transcribed and edited on paper. So they, I had their sign off. So I felt we were a team putting it out there into the world and that really helped. And those diary entries of your own had Cam and Emily read those before or was that something that was really new it felt like it was really beautiful to share share those experiences it was interesting I mean I'd only ever um written them for them originally the only reason I ever wrote a diary and kept a diary was partly because I was finding it cathartic to write my own thoughts and memories down as things occurred because I was fearful of forgetting the memories. And also my children were so young. They were, um, well, I suppose, you know, in times of three and six after Harry died, that I I I knew there were there was a lot they wouldn't remember. And they had really grieved. And I wanted them to be able to access it if they ever wanted. So they know it it existed, they knew it existed, but they had never asked to see it. Um, so actually when you know when I asked them to read it before I went to a publisher that was the first time they'd ever Mm. and it enabled us to uh, it enabled us to have some amazing conversations yes yes I can imagine that and it's just 
that's not something that I would find in my family would be readily available. Not that I've really tried, but it's just the thought of interviewing my mum about grief for a podcast just seems, yeah, so um, unlikely. Yes, actually, that's something, Jen, that I do work on with clients. I was working with somebody yesterday on it, actually, you know, about how to get families talking because she was saying we all protect each other and Mm. we don't about it because because it's too painful at the moment and so we actually came up with some ideas together of you know as the anniversary approaches um having something like either going for a long walk and dinner together it could be anything at all it could be a picnic it could be anything just going for a drink whatever but gathering the intimate people you want whether it's just your family or whether it's a few friends as well and um and asking them to write down memories on cards and bring them there and then going around and sharing memories and that's an amazing way of just getting the conversation going and having the Mm. conversation and having a laugh too and probably a cry yes but very simple yeah but a lot of families end up not talking about what's going on and how they actually feel and where they are at any given time just because it's too painful and they're all protecting each other but actually the reports I get back when we've instigated something like that are so beautiful. You know, it doesn't have to even be an anniversary birthday. It could yeah. just be, or doing a bit of fundraising can be really amazing in memory of the person because it gives a good um, platform and excuse in a way to talk about them, to talk about how the family is, to bring back some memories, to ask for memories to be shared again to see how everyone's doing in the community around that person and to raise some money positively. So you've got a shared purpose as a group in memory of that person. So it's so sort of layered that approach in the benefits of fundraising in memory of someone. It's much more than just raising some money. It's offering an opportunity to come together again. Yeah, I can see that, how it would make you so much closer. Oh, Lizzie, I could talk to you all day. Thank you. You're so lovely to talk to in terms of it it feels refreshing to have these open conversations, especially because I didn't know you before. I just was so intrigued by your book and just asked if you wouldn't mind coming and chatting. So thank you so much for for your work. And I felt like so much resonated in your book and I found it so comforting and helpful. So thank you for that. Oh, Jen, well, th- thank you for the work you do. I've loved looking you up too. I hope we'll meet for real one day. And um, I'm going to listen to more episodes of the podcast now. I've I've um, followed you and, you know, yeah, we'll be in touch. And thank you so much for having me and for encouraging me, actually, that it, you know, that, that it is resonating for people with different types of grief, because that's what I always hoped. Yes, yes. And and really challenging that hierarchy of grief or whether that's from the types of grief and relationships or whether that's from time as well, because I feel like I've definitely feel like I shouldn't, you know, that time should have healed and it clearly won't. And and your book is so good at at challenging those beliefs. So thank you so much. But in it, but I say challenging, but it was more in a very comforting and a nurturing way. Yeah, maybe normalising it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, oh, thank you so much. And good luck with the rest of the um, the book. Oh, publicity. thank you. <laughs> I'm doing a little 
little local um festival um this weekend which will be really nice it's lovely to sort of go and do the bigger ones I did hay festival and things like that but it's so nice to do local ones where there might be some familiar faces as well but it's you know it's great maybe I can come up to the peak district and do something that would be lovely but yes I hope our paths cross but thank you so much I really value this conversation thank you Jen I look forward to hearing it Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe, leaving a review or sharing us with others. Thank you so much and see you next time on the Resilience Rising podcast.